I am proud to come to this city as the guest of your distinguished mayor who has symbolized throughout the world the fighting spirit of West Berlin. And I am proud And I am proud to visit the Federal Republic with your distinguished Chancellor, who for so many years has committed Germany to democracy and freedom and progress, and to come here in the company of my fellow American, General Clay, who been in this city during its great moment of crisis and will come again if ever needed. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the proudest post was Kiwis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. I, uh, I, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate my interpreter translating my German. There are many people in the world who really don't understand or say they don't. What is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say, there are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say, in Europe and elsewhere, we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. And there are even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system but it permits us to make economic progress. Lost the not Berlin in common. Let them come. Freedom has many difficulties. And democracy is not perfect.
but we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. I want to say on behalf of my countrymen who live many miles away on the other side of the Atlantic, who are far distant from you, that they take the greatest pride, that they have been able to share with you, even from a distance, the story of the last 18 years. I know of no town, no city, that has been besieged for 18 years that still lives with the vitality and the force and the hope and the determination of the city of West Berlin. While the wall is the most obvious and vivid demonstration of the failures of the communist system, for all the world to see, we take no satisfaction in it, for it is, as your mayor has said, an offense not only against history, but an offense against humanity, separating families dividing husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, and dividing a people who wish to be joined together. What is true of this city is true of Germany. Real lasting peace in Europe can never be assured as long as one German out of four is denied the elementary right of free men, and that is to make a free choice. In 18 years of peace and good faith, this generation of Germans has earned the right to be free, including the right to unite their families and their nation in lasting peace with goodwill to all people. You live in a defended island of freedom, but your life is part of the main. So let me ask you as I close, to lift your eyes beyond the dangers of today to the hopes of tomorrow, beyond the freedom merely of this city of Berlin or your country of Germany, to the advance of freedom everywhere, beyond the wall, to the day of peace with justice, beyond yourselves and ourselves, to all mankind, freedom is indivisible. And when one man is enslaved, all are not free. When all are free, then we look and look forward to that day when this city will be joined as one and this country 
and this great continent of Europe in a peaceful and hopeful globe. When that day finally comes, as it will, the people of West Berlin can take sober satisfaction in the fact that they were in the front lines for almost two decades. So, 50 years ago, my uncle John Kennedy came to this city. Vor 50 Jahren kam John F. Kennedy hier nach Berlin. He came here to Berlin because Berlin was the front line against global totalitarianism. Er kam nach Berlin, denn das war die Front gegen den Totalitarismus. And today again, Berlin is the front line against global totalitarianism. Und es ist heute ganz genauso. Berlin ist die Front gegen Totalitarismus. My uncle came here. He proudly said to the people of Germany, "Each be nine Berliner." Und er hat stolz gesagt. And today, all of us who are here today can proudly say once again. Each be nine Berliner. Und wir alle heute können stolz sagen, ich bin ein Berliner. Because you are the front line against totalitarianism. Und wir sind wieder die Front gegen Totalitarismus. The newspapers are saying that I came here today to speak to about 5,000 Nazis. Zu Hause in den Vereinigten Staaten behaupten die Zeitungen, ich wäre hierher gekommen, um mit 5000 Nazis zu reden. And tomorrow they're going to report that yes, I was here and I spoke to maybe three to five thousand Nazis. Und morgen werden sie genau das berichten, dass ich zu etwa 83.000 bis 5.000 Nazis geredet haben werde. Und wenn ich in die Menge schaue, sehe ich das Gegenteil von Nazis. I see people who love democracy. Ich sehe Menschen, die Demokratie lieben. People who want open government. Menschen, die eine offene Regierung wollen. People who want leaders that are not going to lie to them. Menschen, die für Anführer haben wollen, von denen sie nicht belogen werden. People who are not leaders who will not make up arbitrary rules and regulations to orchestrate obedience of the population. Wir wollen keine Anführer, die wahllos irgendwelche Regelungen erlassen, um unsere Demut, um unsere Unterwürfigkeit zu erwirken. We want health officials 
who don't have financial entanglements with the pharmaceutical industry, who are working for us and not Big Pharma. Officials who care about our children's health and not about pharmaceutical profits or government control. I look at this crowd, I see all the flags of Europe. I see people of every color. I see people from every nation, every religion, all caring about human dignity, about children's health, about political freedom. This is the opposite of Nazism. Governments love pandemics. Regierungen lieben Pandemien. They love pandemics for the same reason they love war. Und die lieben sie aus den gleichen Gründen, wie sie den Krieg lieben. Because it gives them the ability to impose controls on the population that the population would otherwise never accept. Weil es ihnen die Lage versetzt, Kontrollmechanismen zu installieren, die wir sonst niemals akzeptieren würden. To create institutions and mechanisms for orchestrating and imposing obedience. Das sind Institutionen und Mechanismen, die unsere Unterwürfigkeit erfordern. Now I'll tell you something. It's a mystery to me that all of these big important people like Bill Gates and Tony Fauci have been planning and thinking about this pandemic for decades. Planning it so that we would all be safe when the pandemic finally came. And yet, now that it's here, they don't seem to know what they're talking about. They seem, they seem to be making it up as they go along. They're inventing numbers. They, don't, they cannot tell you what the case fatality rate for COVID is. That's basic. They cannot give us a PCR test that actually works. They don't have, they have to change the definition of COVID on the death certificates constantly to make it look more and more dangerous. The one thing that they're good at is pumping up fear. 75 years ago, Herman Gehring testified at the Nuremberg trials. And he was asked, how did you make the German people go along with all this? And he said, it's an easy thing. It's not anything to do with Nazism. It has to do with human nature. You can do this in a Nazi regime. You can do it in a socialist regime. You can do it in a communist regime. Yeah. You can do it in a monarchy and a democracy. The only thing a government needs to make people into slaves is fear. And if you can figure out something to make them scared, you can get them to do anything that you want. And using the quarantine to bring 5G into all of our communities. Aber sie haben die Quarantäne genutzt, um 5G hier in unsere Gemeinden zu bringen. And to shift us all, to begin the process of shifting us all to a digital currency, which is the beginning of slavery. Und sie haben den Anfang geschaffen für eine digitale Währung. Und das ist der Beginn der Sklaverei. Because if they control your bank account, they control your behavior. Und das ist diese Kontrolle. Sie können uns nicht in unserem Verhalten beeinflussen. 
and we all see these advertisements on television saying 5G is coming to your community. It's going to be a great thing for all of you. It's going to change your lives. It's going to make all of your lives so much better. Und wir sehen, dass 5G überall hingebracht werden soll. Die Fernseher sind voll davon, die Anzeigen sind voll davon, die Werbung. Sie sagen uns, 5G macht unser Leben besser. And it's very convincing, I have to say. Because I look at those ads and I think, that's great. I can hardly wait till it gets here. Und die wollen einfach, dass wir dieses 5G einfach akzeptieren. No. The reason is for surveillance and data harvesting. It's not for you and me. It's for Bill Gates. It's for Jeffrey Zuckerberg. And it's for Bezos and all of the other billionaires. And it's not for surveillance and data harvesting. It's for Bill Gates and his friends. And not for us. Bill Gates says that his satellite, that his satellite fleet will be able to look at every square inch of the planet 24 hours a day. That's only the beginning. He also will be able to follow you on all of your smart devices through biometric facial recognition, through your GPS. You think that Alexis is working for you. No. She isn't working for you. She's working for Bill Gates yeah. spying on you. And the the pandemic is a crisis of convenience for the elites who are dictating these policies. Diese Pandemie kommt der Elite zu Pass, damit sie uns alles diktieren kann, was sie will. It gives them the ability to obliterate the middle class, to destroy the institutions of democracy, to shift all of our wealth from all of us to a handful of billionaires to make themselves rich by impoverishing the rest of us. And the only thing between them and our children is this crowd that has come to Berlin. Und das Einzige zwischen denen und unseren Kindern ist diese Menge hier in Berlin. And we're telling them today, you are not going to take away our freedom. You are not going to poison our children. We are going to demand our democracy back. Thank you all very much for fighting. you enjoy I um, I think we're at a significant turning point in all this uh, unprecedented in my lifetime that's for sure <laughs> but I want to share um, a lot of clips so I'm gonna try and keep my comments brief but just describe with a few kind of personal anecdotes how I'm experiencing this transition and and set up these other clips that I think are just resonant with the situation First of all, I've tacked at the end uh, a clip, movie clip from Stockholm, the film. Uh, I think it was maybe two years ago. I really enjoyed it. It was just one of those random on a on a flight. Started watching it, not knowing anything about it. I mean, I had heard this, the tales of the story around the quote-unquote syndrome, 
the Stockholm Syndrome. And I was familiar with the concept of the Stockholm Syndrome, but I knew nothing about the original bank robbery or what happened or why it became. I mean, almost everyone around the world, even the Emirates crew, the flight I was on, they actually get um, trained on the concept of Stockholm Syndrome in their training. They shared that when I was watching the, the film. But so um, I love the film and I'll explain why. But I went looking to understand the original case a little bit better because it's just so well known. I mean, the syndrome is so well known and the, the actual case in Stockholm is so unknown. Uh, and the guy, the perpetrator of the actual crime, uh, I will share his name. In the, he wrote a book on the case, but it's only available in Swedish. So I asked some Swedish friends if they could help me find the English translation, and the, it just I just got nowhere understanding the original. So I still don't know almost anything about the original case. I think that's a little bit mysterious. How do we all know about the syndrome, and we don't know about the what actually happened? <laughs> I watched it after I saw it, enjoyed it thoroughly on the plane. I rewatched it a few times because I just enjoyed. There was such a mix of kind of comedy and drama and adventure and thrill and authority and and versus crime and and the idea of freedom and surveillance. All these things all mixed in together in a very entertaining uh, film. So I rewatched it a few times and then just this year I've been thinking there's something deeply spiritual in that film and I still can't quite put my finger on it but I'll just sketch out the themes and uh, maybe the universe will bring us the answers on it. I went looking for analysis and insight you know inner meaning deeper meaning on the themes and I, I last night and I found a number of kind of reviews but they're all very shallow anyway I'll tell you why I think it is resonant in all, all I can talk about is the film. I can't say anything to do with what the actual facts of the case were at the center of it. It's kind of a love story about two guys love. I mean, in a platonic heterosexual guys, brotherly love, brotherly love story at the center with two guys that had bonded and watched each other's backs in prison. And and the whole um, premise of the bank robbery was to break one guy felt like he owed it to the other guy and he was breaking his friend out of prison. That's basically what it was. And the hostages uh, identify with the humanity of their purpose and the love between them and what they were trying to do that the hostages started to get sympathetic with the with the thieves. And uh, and then they labeled it, you know, they labeled it Stockholm Syndrome as if it's something irrational, but it happens all the time. Filmmaker's name is Boudreaux, and the uh, perpetrator's name is Jan Olsson. And his friend that he was trying to break out of prison, Olsson, his friend uh, and former cell, cellmate was Clark Olofsson. So their names are fairly similar. But the uh, original event took over six days. Um, and the prime minister got involved and the media was all out front. So it's not surprising it kind of got into collective consciousness, but now it's been labeled around this syndrome. I guess, I mean, I suspect that there was like a deep, true, genuine humanity at the center and someone trying to use violent, violent means, you know, to secure their freedom and, and you know, innocent, innocent uh, 
victims, uh, that's never going to end well. But there was, you know, it was interesting, obviously, that got into the collective consciousness, the way that the hostages took the side of the humanity of the two guys to the point of like standing up to the prime minister and, and standing up to the police. And, and you could see in the film anyway, the dirty tricks um, and lies and surveillance and they didn't the police and it seemed like the prime minister as well in the film didn't give two shits about the hostages they just wanted to quote unquote win the scenario the other aspect and this could just be pure hollywood but it came out in the film was the woman's husband the woman at the center who the primary hostage in the film you could even kind of see how her her husband seemed so shallow and sort of almost weak and parasitic almost and how the the criminals started to look like a hero to her her character's name was uh bianca lind and you know in the film you can see her humanity coming out she's in this crazy situation and she's just yes she's behaving to save herself but she's also her humanity just is front and center she's worried about her kids and how they're going to react and her and her parents and she's worried about everybody else and then she's you know she stands up she stands up for what's right constantly throughout the film so she's just an incredible hero and then they do say the one some of the facts that i was able to find that people involved in terms of the hostages those families became great friends but uh the bianca lind character she did become great friends with the perpetrator and visited him in prison and um and stayed friends ever since so there's so much more to that story than the quote-unquote syndrome the, the one primary reason and this brings me back to the whole theme of this podcast is there's a scene where so that so this you know quote-unquote criminal has gone in well he's he is definitely perpetrating a criminal act he's gone in and he's taken these hostages and he's the authority now. He's in the bank, and he's in the, he's the authority now. And he's standing up to the quote-unquote authority. You know, he's he's got something brotherly love that he's ranking higher than himself, um, than the rules, than the hostages. And uh, there's a scene where he stands up to the chief of police and says, "No, no, I said no." You know, and I just think that that's. I, I just loved it as a scene to make the point that that's the word that people have lost. And Mark Passio often makes this point. But standing up, once you know right from wrong and you know when you're in the right and you know to defend truth and freedom and the little guy, you can say no with resolve in your sovereign power. And I just thought that was a really great example, even though, you know, Violence, obviously, is never going to end well. I just thought it was a really great example, and it's constantly resonating with me as a film example of someone standing up to authority and also the abuses and the pride and narcissism of the politicians and, the, in this case, the police. And the humanity is, like, way down the list in terms of their view of the situation. What they're most concerned about is their image, how their image is going to look or how the thing plays out. And that's really what's driving them. So anyway, I hope you enjoy that clip at the end. Uh, I think maybe it's seven minutes, but I just, I, you, it wouldn't really have any <laughs> resonance for you if I didn't set it up that way. Now, 
Okay, the turning point. I mean, if you haven't had a chance to see the David Icke speech in Trafalgar Square, uh, you've now experienced the two Kennedys in Berlin. I didn't know that backstory on the original JFK speech in uh, Berlin. I think it was 1963. It was June, so it was just like six months before his assassination. And now his brother's son returns with the very same themes, with the very same community. They literally, the headlines were exactly as Bobby mentioned in his talk. You know, like 20, <laughs> Bobby Kennedy addresses crowd of 25 Nazis. When you see the crowd, they're somewhere between one and a half and two million, at least. Probably could be upwards to two and a half million. And they came from all over Europe, all over Europe. European flags are showing in, in the whole crowd. And they know the meaning of what uh, JFK's talk and the points that JFK was making. And, and Bobby really, to me, hit it home. He just resonated with that crowd and just in such a humble, authentic way. I just think the contrast, I think it's really fascinating. Uh, I can't wait to see the, do the documentary. If you contrast Dershowitz and Kennedy and, and how ridiculous Dershowitz looks and how heroic Kennedy looks. And they faced off recently in a uh, quote-unquote debate about vaccines and Bobby Kennedy that's his expertise I think he's a lawyer he his he he had a mastery of the facts and the risks and the history and the data around vaccines and he really held his own but I think he underestimated how low he you know that he, he, he I think he maybe showed a little bit too much respect <laughs> to Alan mr. I kept my underpants on Dershowitz so who's just completely embroiled, as I mentioned in the last episode, in the, in the Epstein accusations. I just think the contrast is incredible. I think you've got, you've got the image for each side, sort of good versus evil, honesty and truth and future and growth and humanity on the Kennedy side. And then you've got spin and media control and deception and, and like the nerve of Mr. Dirtbag Dershowitz to go on CNN and say to the public that he kept his underpants on. I mean, it's just so hilariously ridiculous. He's going to need his big boy underpants now. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but anyway, so the, to, to me, the tides are ch are changing, and uh, these events, this RFK Jr. in Berlin, and Ike. Uh, there's an interesting story too with with Ike and his son Gareth. I think I'm not 100% sure, but I watched that podcast when they when they do it together, the two Ikes. So again, it's a father-son. In the last one I saw, Gareth said, I'm going off to this protest, Dad. Wish me luck. You know, there's, apparently there's going to be some whatever. Antifa people are threatening to come, but, you know, there's a bunch. Anyway, he said it could get a little messy, but I like a mess. Something like that. Anyway, the next thing I knew, David Ike was, I don't know if it was the same protest, but it looked like David Ike took the platform that his son was was willing and ready to take and just hit it out of the park. Again, you know, the numbers they're reporting are hilarious. They it looked it was definitely over five hundred thousand. It was it was in the neighborhood, I guess I'd say between three hundred thousand and a million. It's very difficult to tell from the coverage. But um but David Ike hit it out of the park. And uh, that's it. I mean truth to power. Truth and freedom's gonna win. So I just think that's the turning point that we're at right now.
and freedom wins, you know, freedom, freedom wins. <laughs> There's no question. It's just, and I, the, the, one of the personal experiences I've had in the last six or eight days is all these cyber jails. It's literally cyber jails. Like these old, they just seem so archaic now, antiquated. These old services, quote unquote, I, I don't do anything almost with Microsoft anymore. But Skype and uh, even PayPal and my bank, Canadian Bank, and like all these, they're trying so desperately to keep controls on, and the phone companies, my God, uh, keep controls on people to try and like everyone's supposed to not roam and, you know, pay their bills when they're roaming remotely, you know, for example. So the, I'm in Africa. So the assumption is that I'm supposed to be roaming with my Canadian SIM card, paying a roaming plan to Rogers or whoever, and getting my security codes from my bank so that I can pay my bills locally. You know what I mean? Like, the, like how preposterous that they think that Rogers and the Canadian banks and Skype and PayPal think that uh, that's it. They're going to be able to control people's travels in terms of bill pays and approvals and things like it's just so preposterous it's like 20 years ago you know yeah sure fine you close the skies and you've got this airport security thing <laughs> happening but but it, you, you're not going to be able to keep a lid on this thing and these crowds and these speakers and these leaders are just um, blowing the lid off it so when I experienced that now I mean you know uh, maybe even six months ago it would have felt bleak, but now it's just like rocket fuel to propel yourselves into the new technologies, the new peer-to-peer, -peer, the new currencies, because like they're they're literally, as Michael Sarion often says, sowing the seeds of their own destruction. That's what evil does. They they all you have to do is bring them out into the light. You know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and it just they shrivel up like like the pathetic <laughs> controllers that they are. So to me, the truthers that have been fighting the good fight and, and uh, supporting authenticity and facts and freedom and uh, the sovereign rights of individuals through all this, I mean, that is just a groundswell now. I mean, there's some quite borderline mainstream people in Canada that are completely waking up to this. To me, that means you've got something like the top third of the populations worldwide are clued in now. When you see those crowds in Berlin, I mean, those people aren't backing down for anything like it's over it's over it's just a matter of how quickly and and exactly how it gets it gets done to like rid ourselves of these antiquated control systems so to me the uh there's like a, a split that's going to happen i hope i hope there's some fraction of the truthers that just dedicate themselves like i mentioned in the last recording about like elliot ness's that just go out to expose the absolute pathetic depravity behind the curtain uh, and because once once the daylight shines through those people are finished and, the, and they're so humiliated by their own behaviors and their own machinations and when you know when you show truth against deception it's just it's laughable the deceptions are laughable and then the other the other group of truthers is going to continue to uh, beat the drum to wake up the silent majority who are just constantly hitting the snooze button between those two groups, I think that's kind of how it's going to flow. I just don't know exactly how these criminals are going to get exposed. 
but uh, that's to me how it's going to go from here and it's so exciting i feel like every time i mentioned this before every time i touch these new networks these peer-to-peer technologies these um crypto and and uh peer-to-peer systems and private networks it's like you're touching the future it's these are these are just good-hearted crack software engineers that are trying to help free people with their with their abilities that's exciting to me so just a, a couple of words on uh, Epstein and Cain and Abe and the Cain and Abel story and then I'll tell you my my beach story and I'll let the the recording finish with the Stockholm clip at the very very end at the end of the full song at the end of the recording I've tacked on this beautiful talk by a beautiful woman living in the mountains with her husband somewhere in the Himalayas I think I don't know anything about her I got it through a chat uh, but I just think that what she actually said is so brilliant I couldn't leave it out and I have no link to rec- to share on the website there is a bit shoot that went around but the link is broken for me anyway so I just tacked it on the very end so if you want to hang in at the end of the full song at the end of the recording you will get that uh, otherwise I'll include it more prominently in in the uh, next week's recording anyway the Cain and Abel story I, I kind of I had a couple of listeners make the point that that metaphor is really the battle we're obviously in fighting in fighting it with ourselves internally as well and i've never ever considered this i watched this incredible documentary it's maybe three and a half hours it's called jfk to 9 11 everything's a rich man's trick and i've shared the link and i've shared the crowd fund that filmmaker it must have taken him years of research he cracked that thing and and um really hit it home and you know he's working against the the matrix so he he hasn't seen his fortune other than praise from everyone that knows the uh, material he covered it how well he covered it so i i'm sharing those links on the site but he mentioned in an interview uh recently it was last year sometime he happened to mention an essay that's not well known from orwell which is called the politics of the english language um which is only like a 40 minute talk i mean somebody somebody actually read it on on youtube so you can listen to the recording he's just lamenting basically orwell is about how people are abusing the english language to not say anything these are like highly articulate highly educated people that just jumble their words and you can't and they're using metaphors and they're using um negatives multiple nested negatives and you can't tell what they're trying to say it's fantastic anyway that kind of little foray into Orwell made me realize that this big brother, you know, the, the, the metaphor he uses for big brother, that can't be a complete accident that the Cain and Abel, Cain is the big brother, you know, and that's the struggle that we're having internally. What I'm, I mean, what I see now a lot with weaker people that don't know the full story. Uh, well, I should say, I should say, I got some fantastic advice about how to deal with friends and family and even strangers that you run into because I've struggled with this. It's not a time to be antagonistic. The The advice that I got was uh, radical acceptance. You accept where they're at 110%. You accept where they're coming from 110%. You don't try and confront them right on the face or you're going to get yourself into a uh, tit for tat. Um, but when you accept the disconnect and the person and the situation, 
you are in such a better place, just like Kennedy versus Dershowitz. You're in such a better place to tap into divine intelligence for the next moment, whatever that is. And the solutions come. So if you're in a disconnect, but you accept the situation for what I'm finding, this is what I'm finding personally in the last couple of weeks, that I'm just, somebody is completely at a different place in terms of how they're seeing things. But if you accept them and you set your boundaries, you're in, you can dominate the situation with your command of presence because you're closer to reality than, than their fear-based sense of the situation. That's how I've been experiencing it, and it's, and it's working. So just the last couple of words on the Cain and Abel. To me, it's a, it's a fear of freedom. I mean, it's a fear of a level playing field, of a transparent, fair game, when we're all playing the same game and, and the big brother could lose. You know, that's what it is. And, and I guess the struggle internally is, you know, the ways that you're afraid to let your kind of free, naive, gullible, innocent self out and try the next new thing, you know, and so you tyrannize yourself sometimes with basically scaring yourself away from trying these new topics or these new technologies and new skills or whatever, or new experiences, whatever it may be. Uh, somebody said your your e somebody said to me once your ego is like an overbearing mother-in-law, <laughs> which I thought was just brilliant. You know, like it, it's there to protect you, but it also if you let it get out of control, you'll never do anything. You'll just hide under the kitchen table like uh, Home Alone. Anyway, I will. I want to finish up with just this experience I've had with uh, stray dogs on the beach, and uh, and then let the clips speak for themselves. The first, uh, I, I, you may have noticed, my last recording, I had a hoarse voice. And the reason was, I've been going for these long walks in nature. I've got, I've got two ways I can turn on the beach. One uh, leads me into these traditional mud hut villages that are just immaculately natural and beautiful. They probably don't even need cash or banks or sims or anything in their life. They're just, um, they've got handmade tools and handmade boats and they're handmade nets and they just fish and live off the nature, uh, off-grid, in complete contentment. So I can walk and experience that, which is really nice. And if I go left, I just go into, it's almost like it's there's a sea, but it's a bit of a marshy area. And so it's very isolated. I, I can go for a very long walk that way and not run into another soul. So when I'm really uh, in, introspective, I tend to go into the get lost in nature way. So I was doing that, enjoying it. I get lost in my mind quite a bit. And one day, a pack, literally a pack of wild dogs, they're, they're, they're domestic breeds, but they were stray dogs, um, just surprised me. They came up behind me. There was, uh, there was three of them. And just vicious. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't tell if they were uh, attack, in attack mode. I couldn't tell the difference between whether they were just trying to scare me or if they were in pure attack mode. That's the way they were coming at me. So all I could come up with to try and look big and angry and hold my ground, I knew if I ran, I was they, they would probably have nipped my heels if I ran. Uh, so that's what I did. And uh, that's how, what made me lose my voice because I was like trying to growl and bark and look big and make my arms big, you know, um, which worked. And they, But then they cycled back and they got a fourth dog and they came back again. And luckily, uh, I, at one point I stumbled and I fell right down, surrounded by a pack of four stray angry dogs they didn't know what to do 
you know? So that was clear it was just a bark scare thing. At that point, they didn't know what to do anyway. And uh, so, the, you know, that was a bit of a relief, but it's still, <laughs> I walk with a stick now. I was just thinking, you know, and the, the next time I came, one of the fish, local fishermen, I ran into a fisherman that way, and he ex- tried to explain. He had almost no English, but through sign language and broken words, he tried to explain that those dogs had a, a white owner before who mistreated them, tied them to a pole. This is what I gathered. Tied them to a pole, starved them, hit them with sticks until they chewed themselves off their leash. And now when they see a white guy, he said, you must be reminding them of that guy. And they're very pissed off. <laughs> and that's, to me, you know, it's a metaphor for trauma. And, you know, if, if, if you let that, I guess that kind of revenge overtake your entire existence like there is no reasoning with those with those dogs i mean forget about dialogue you know what i mean it was i had to i had to meet them with a stick the next time that got better but still it'll be scary if they come again with a with four or five or i mean five or six uh so that was one lesson you know that you can't if someone's acting from trauma i mean you, you forget reason it goes right out the window the other aspect, I was returning, and there was a local uh, Indian woman who was walking into the, uh, in, the second time, walking into the wild dogs, and I said, or the stray dogs, and I said, uh, they're out today, you know, and they're quite pissed off, and she goes, that's okay, you know, that she, she, had a, she had a long stick as well, but it, but it would have done, it, it was more like a walking stick, and she was walking with a dog, uh, a healthy, normal dog, and I just thought, I was more thinking about, and she goes, yeah, this, the dog's name is Zuri. Zuri is, just defends me. They put all their attention onto Zuri, and Zuri holds her ground. And I just thought, you know, here's, and she said one time it was six, and Zuri has actually been bitten by one of them. And I just, and I watched them walk off towards the, the angry stray dogs. I didn't see if they came out that time. But Zuri was in her element. Like, to me, what what I took was, this dog, this is who she is. This dog is like, this is me. This is my master and this is me. And I'm, you know, like there was not an ounce of fear. She was going off to do what she does. You know what I mean? Like live free or die. To me, that's what it was. Live free or die. I do. I'm, you know, true to my soul or you can just take me down with however many dogs you can come, but I'm going. (laughs) And uh, it was touching. It was really, really touching. I I was touched by the Indian woman. She didn't have an ounce of fear either. But the dog, Zuri, I mean, they could have torn her to shreds. And she was going off like in the epitome of pure courage, natural courage. And I just thought, you know, this dog, is. there's nothing, obviously, there's nothing going on in their mind. There's no calculation, rationalization. This is just her being, her being herself, true to herself. So I just thought that that was a metaphor for what we're up against. Sometimes the uh, the dark matrix looks a bit scary, but man, in the face of truth and freedom and humanity there's just no contest there's absolutely no contest it's only the deception it's only the deception that works once you see through it it's over it's game over and i feel like that's where we're at right now we're at game over so enjoy the clips and we'll be back to you next week with more good news i'm sure Neil McDougall, and as painful as it is, 
Logos is definitely rising. It's all for a good cause, Chief. Chief Hold that bloody thought. An American with a machine gun has taken over Credit Banken. Credit Banken? This is Bianca Lind at Credit Banken. Um, there, there's an American with a big gun. Is anyone else hurt there? Uh, my my colleague is tied up. And Ask him what they want. He's asking what you want. Tell him that I want him right now. I want him here in 10 minutes or I shoot you in the face and then hang up. Tell him that. He wants you here in 10 minutes or he shoots me in the face. Was he surprised? I mean, did he sound surprised? I mean, fuck, right? Just... We'll have the biggest bank in Sweden. I mean, it's gonna be a surprise. Mrs. Lind's husband is here. Come over and let let her talk to him. Don't let them boss you around. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa! What do we get, huh? Yeah, we're hungry. Yeah, we could starve to death in here waiting for this Mustang. It's coming, and. And we will bring you food. And beer. Yeah, food, beer, cigarettes, marble reds. Yeah, yeah. That's lovely. Bianca, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm okay. What are you doing here? Why are you not with the kids? Well, I had to come. I'm, I mean... Go home and make them dinner. And don't tell them about this. Okay, I won't. I, when will you be home? She'll be home tonight. If uh, Beanfo over here can keep his promises, okay? Yeah, listen. Let me take her spot. Ooh. <laughs> Sounding off like he's got a pair, huh? <laughs> I like that. I like that. But no. How about that, Gunnar? Why don't you come over here and help us out? You heard him. He says no. I sure know. Okay? In case you haven't noticed. Your wife's a fox, hey. and you're not, huh? If I die, you can you can live on fish. You won't die. She won't die. Please she don't tell tonight. Yes, please she won't die as long as he gives me what I need. All right? I need a Mustang. I need Edmond Bills. I need food. I need cigarettes. You're not helping me at all, Jack. It's all on its way, Kai. Miss Lind, Vincent Erdogan, Sveriges Television. Yeah, you just said that. All of Sweden would like to know, what is it like being stuck in there with those criminals? It's not too bad. We want to leave with them. With the robbers? That's correct. But why? I, I don't understand. Because we want to live. Sure, but, but you trust them? More than we trust our police. Sir, you're live with Miss Lind. Yes. Hello? Hello? Mrs. Lind. I've been listening. It's not that simple. Mr. Prime Minister, it is. If you let us go, we might live. If the police don't interfere, nobody will get hurt and we will survive. You can save our lives. And the best way to do that is not to let them out on the roads with you. But we are willing to take that risk. I wish that would make a difference. But as Prime Minister, I'm responsible for all the Swedish people. Exactly. But all the Swedish people are not in here. We are trapped in here. We. And, and if the police comes in and they start shooting, he will shoot back. And then nobody will survive. We live in an orderly society. 
One should not be able to violent methods to do such things. He's not violent. And this is not the time to talk about the society. I am violent, hey! Leave us the father. Who's that? Oh, yeah? Is that it? Yeah. Okay, he blew up the fucking mic. Let's get the commoner down there. Okay, no, we no, use no, the no, same setup. Not until we penetrate the ceiling. We Increase the, the drilling for the next three hours, non-stop. Okay, and then on. turn up the heat he to suffocate the... them. Listen to what I'm saying. And then Ingmar. we freeze them. And then back again. On, Hang on. Off, Ingmar, on, they're going off, to get on, sick, okay? What's gotten no. into you? No. It's the hostages. Yeah, I'm they're the hostages. They're the hostages. If they want our help, they need to show us some respect. All I am saying... Are they in charge? Look what they're doing. Those criminals, they think they're in charge. But we are in charge, so let's turn up the heat. And when they call us, they will. You do not answer the phones, you hear me? Do you hear me? I do, Chief. Then get to it. Oh, oh, oh. oh, that's the way it is, huh? So either I bust you out, or you turn me in, or you kill me, huh? It's a win-win for you, is that it? Huh? I've been giving you second chances all your life, Lars. I know that is what brothers do for each other, man. That is what having each other's back means. Look, you don't want to leave with me, I don't want to go. Turn me in, turn me in, I don't care. What are they offering you, huh? A lot. Yeah, how much am I worth? Huh? I just said a lot. Uh-huh. Oh, Jesus Christ. Now you let them free. All you have to do is give me what I want and let me leave with my hostages and all this will be over. Let them out of those nooses. Understood? Chief, you go down there. What do you mean, me? I can go. No! I need you here. You go down and you let them out. Just go on. I, I lost a bloody. Go on. Okay, we're going to open the door and let them go. Hang tight.
and brothers near and far and beloved greetings from the Andes mountains again today I want to talk about truth and especially why is it that many people are not able to see the truth truth we have to understand is real truth is eternal truth is immutable and truth exists whether we believe in it or not But unfortunately, because of the very popular satanic belief system that has infiltrated into the consciousness of many, many people, uh, it's popular to now believe that there is no such thing as truth and that there is your truth and my truth and that you have the right to believe what you believe and I have the right to believe what I believe. But this is creating utter chaos. And as a collective, if we really want to grow spiritually, We have to come to understand that truth is a prerequisite for freedom. And if we hold on to mere opinions and beliefs, then we can only ever create chaos. Because true order, true harmony is always based in truth. So what is truth? There's no reason to mystify truth. Truth actually means what has happened in the past and what is actually happening now. That is what truth is. So our work as conscious human beings is to refine our perception as close to truth as possible. Of course, there are many layers of truth and there are many sides to truth, which is why this is an amazing task in our spiritual growth to learn to see the truth, to learn to really look at reality from different perspectives and see all the different variables, all the different conditions of the manifested reality. And what is required of us to be able to do that is to first see the truth of ourselves. Because if we have a blind spot to our inner world, This same blind spot works as a blind spot to the outer world. So really learning how to decipher truth in a world full of lies and perpetuated confusion. The remedy is to go within and learn to see the truth of our reality. And the first question is, am I lying to myself? Am I holding on to a positive lie? in order to soothe myself, because I am afraid to look at reality for what it truly is. This is one of the reasons that many people will not look at the truth, because they have unhealed wounds from the childhood. They have traumas and such profound insecurities in their inner world that they have developed this external structure of security, this bubble of fantasy, the bubble of 
positive lies that they tell themselves in order to soothe their wounded child. So they will not admit if there is a real threat happening. Like, for instance, what is happening now when a health threat is being used as a justification to strip all of our fundamental human rights away from us. Now, these individuals who are so insecure in themselves find that reality way too terrifying. So they would rather hold on to a positive lie and believe the media surface narrative of things. That all these measures, all this police-enforced quarantine against healthy, peaceful people is merely for our own protection because they are too terrified to see the actual reality of things, which is, of course, that health is always a personal responsibility and that nobody can use law to bind back the lives of healthy people in order to protect those who are frightened. So they have created this narrative of an invisible enemy. And for many people, that reality of sickness is something that they can identify with and they will gladly hold on to because they are being promised that the big daddy government will look after them. But those of us who can see how the mind of a psychopath works and how in the past these same narratives have been used against us, we understand that whatever protection the government provides is actually our own enslavement. So that is one reason why some people can't see the truth. It's because it's far too frightening. Their psyche cannot handle it. Their worldview would totally collapse. They cannot even fathom that such level of evil could exist in this plane. But those of us who understand the psychopathic mindset know that control is the real currency. And what better way to control than through fear? And the second reason why people cannot see the truth is because their lives are a continuous struggle. They are so busy because they are having to overwork themselves that they simply do not have the energy to think. They don't think. There are many people that they work such hard jobs. Their life is so challenging that when they get home from work, they want nothing more than just to zero out their minds. They do not want to engage in analyzing reality and sorting through news and then seeking for conflict of interest or any underlying agendas or connecting the dots. They're too exhausted. They don't want to know. And the third reason why some people can't see the truth is because of their blinded place of privilege. They have never actually come across injustice in their lives. Somehow they've managed to live their lives in this total fantasy where they believe that governments are actually elected uh, rightfully so and the people that are in power are actually caring people and that the laws that are in place are all justified and moral. And they live in this rosy glassed world where they believe that everything is what people claim it to be. These people are so naive that they don't believe that somebody can lie to them 
Well, if that person says it so in the news, it must be so. Oh, if this product says there that it's good for me, then it must be good for me. If the doctor tells me to take this pill, then I must take it. Nothing's ever happened to them that has shaken their trust in the system. They've never come across injustice. And therefore, it doesn't exist for them. And they live in this permanent la-la land. And if anyone goes to poke them and say, you're believing in a fantasy, the reality is actually horrific, look around, they're no, 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 no. I don't want to ruin my uh, happy feeling. I put my blinkers on. No, you are the problem. You are bursting my bubble. Get out of my life. I want to continue in my rosy, perfect world. And then there's the fourth reason why people can't see the truth. is because they are so heavily brainwashed and conditioned to believe in the state. Statism. When people take whatever the government says or does to their heart with such fierce commitment and belief that it's akin to worship. And so these people feel that if you insult their government, this nameless, faceless entity that they have somehow accepted as their god, that you are insulting them. And then that is blasphemy to ever even consider that the laws that are in place are immoral or that the president that is standing in the podium is a puppet for a cult of power that owns actually every single one of our governments. But because of this severe conditioning, they will fight for their government until the end, even if it means annihilating all human rights. It doesn't matter because government is always right. So you see, these isms and beliefs is what is really blocking our ability to see truth as it is. I often tell my husband that I honestly believe that homeless people are more close to attaining enlightenment than many of the spiritual people that I've met in my circles. Why is that? Because they can see the ugly truth. This story of the American dream or the modern Western dream, this glossy image of the shining city has lost all glamour for them. They can see right through it. They know the reality. And it's painful. It's so painful for them that instead of using it as an inspiration, that truth is actually so crushing that they have lost all hope. And thus they are self-medicating on the street, stuck in a loop of addiction. Many of the people on the street are actually veterans who once believed in government, who gave their every last bit of energy and blood and sweat and tears to defend their country. And when they come back, they realize it was all a lie. It was all illusion. And they are not getting the help they need. They suffer from PTSD. They're not getting the therapy, the help. So they spiral out of society and end up on the streets, used and abused and lied to.
If you've never spoken to a homeless person, it may be difficult to understand what I mean. But uh, my husband and I, a couple of months ago, went around in San Francisco, and we spoke with the homeless people there. They were wide awake. They could see the ugly truth of our reality. And some of them were more generous people than I've ever met, giving every single bit that they get to the others, sharing their coat when they get cold. People who have nothing, not even a shelter, are out there looking after each other in the harsh streets. But I hope that those of us who see the truth would not let the truth crush us but would use this as the diagnostic tool to heal humanity. Because we need to be able to accurately diagnose a problem in order to treat it correctly. And if we never come to terms with the actual reality of our world, of these powers, of these industries, then we are willing slaves of an oppressive system. I liken it to having a splinter under your skin. It's something that doesn't belong to us. This enslavement, this tyranny, it's not from us. It doesn't belong to our nature. Because we are sovereign beings. We are beings with creator consciousness. But this force is oppressing us. And it's telling us a story that we depend on them. But I'm ready to tell another story. I'm ready to say, let's remove that splinter. Because if we don't remove that splinter, it will get infected. And it will begin to spread. And if we don't treat that infection, it can turn into something that is life-threatening. And this is what is happening to the collective soul of humanity right now. Our very nature is under attack. We are being told that our body is not our property. We are being threatened with mandatory medical treatments, examinations, injections against our free will. That is the end of humanity. If we give in to this slavery... We will lose ourselves and we will betray all the generations to come. Because if we don't have bodily autonomy, then we have no freedom. If we don't even have freedom to choose if we take a medical pharmaceutical substance or not, then what freedom have we got left? Our body is our sacred temple and the state does not have the right to violate it under any circumstance. And this is where we have to take a stand now. We have to take a stand. We need to be able to look into the eyes of these oppressors and say, no, you do not have more rights than me. We are all created equal in our rights. And in the face of natural law, you do not have the right to coerce me into a medical treatment against my free will. This is what we must do now. 
So I call on all of you who can see the truth to become the lighthouse, to be the voice for all the generations to come as well. Because what is at stake is the sacred heart of humanity, our very nature. So let's keep speaking the truth and defend our true nature, which is freedom and love.